Hey everybody, welcome to Commercial Construction Elevate the Industry podcast series, and I'm glad to be your host, Dave Presida. Thanks first and foremost for joining us. Uh, you know, we have a lot to say about commercial construction, and today is no different. We have an expert today uh, who's going to fill you with a lot of information about contracts. And that, that may not sound sexy to you, but I got to tell you, if you're in business, especially if you're an owner, this matters. We have with us today Brian Perlberg, Esquire. He is the senior counsel for the Associated General Contractors, as well as the Executive Director of Consensus Docs. He's a real pro. I found him through LinkedIn, and I'm glad I did. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Dave. All right. So you're a senior counsel to the AGC, which is massive. And I'm not going to get into the AGC because we, we already talked to Brian Tremel on a different episode, but uh, that's enough for me to say you're qualified, but what would qualify you to talk to our audience in commercial construction? What, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, so I am a construction attorney, and I have been in this position for 16 years. And Before that, I was the general counsel at the Design Build Institute of America, and we were having conversations about how can we improve the industry? What if we, instead of one association, publishing standard contracts and maybe asking for content and uh, uh, comments from other associations. What if we like got everybody around the same table and gave everybody an equal voice? So instead of repetitively changing your contracts with hundreds of pages of changes, why don't we have a group effort at the national level to make it easier for individuals at the project level to have better contracts? So I came on board uh, and we created Consensus Docs, which is a coalition of now over 40 organizations. It includes AGC, it includes ABC, but it includes owner groups like COA, which is a Construction Owners Association of America, CURT, Construction Users Roundtable. And we've really helped elevate the industry by having a better foundation to build contractually. So I have been at the ground at the early discussions of that project and then came as the lead staff person to bring that to fruition. Uh, you know, one of the things that's a little bit different about me is I wear two hats. I, I, work, in, I, wear, I work in-house at AGC, where we're filming today, and then I serve as executive director and senior counsel for Consensus Stocks, the coalition. So I am very cognizant of making sure that everybody has an equal seat at the table. So you know, you, you use the word collaborative in, in some of your writings. I know it said you talk about a collaborative contract, and I think that's where we're going, right? I think that we're going to talk about the evolution of, of contracts, but today, the better the collaborative contract, which, you know, one of my questions to you was, you're at AGC, which is general contractors, but you have consensus stocks. I don't know if you, you won't see this, but he's got two different sides of his card. Um, so what you're saying is you represent or understand the, which way each side is coming. And I hate to say side, but that's kind of where it is, right? From, from the architect to the general contract, the owner and the subcontractors. So, you know, my take on this is it used to be a zero-sum game. One person won and one person had to lose. That's a zero-sum game. We're trying to do something different. We're trying to make a better foundation to, to build. I'm an attorney and I can tell you when an owner and a general contractor or a general contractor and a sub have to litigate a claim everybody's a loser. The only way you can have success is for the project to have success. And 
one of the first things you do, the very first thing that you do on a project is you negotiate, draft, negotiate, and sign a contract. And that's the honeymoon period. And if you can't get that right, you know on a construction project, something is gonna arise at some point, it's gonna be a sticky wicket. And you wanna have teams who are the best teams who can work through those projects, uh, those, those issues. And if you don't, if you have that zero sum game, like I'm gonna stick it to you, I'm gonna play hide the ball, I'm gonna put this, this contract provision that's a gotcha clause, you're gonna get got, you're gonna get got at some point. And it's, so we're trying to take a zero sum game into a win-win scenario. So I've seen contracts that go way back and they've changed, but when I say the owner, when I talk about the client, okay, I'm gonna call the client a general contractor. I, I typically think the client has the upper hand because they have the job that I want. Yes. And depending on the way the market is today, it's, it's a robust market, maybe not so much, but you know, in 2008, and nine and 10, you know, people were dying for work. Um, if you're a business owner, this matters because this is risk management, right? 101. 101. So let's go back to the days when they started. You said that the, the zero sum game and it would be, it, who drew up the first contract, the general contract? Was it, did it just you know, arise, two guys had a deal, they wanted to build a building, and one guy wanted to have a, a general contractor build it, and they, that's how it started? Was the AIA involved? When did the AIA get involved? Sure. So, so I'll start with the AIA since they were the first ones to publish standard construction contracts. They love to tout that they've been around for over 100 years. They actually precede AGC, which has been around for 100 years. The predecessor to AGC and the AIA got together. I think it's in, I should know, but it's definitely over 100 years. I want to say it's in the late 1800s. Yes. Okay, that was a short form contract that I would say today. But I mean, even if you don't have it in writing, there's always, uh, you, have, you have verbal contracts. But things got a, have got a lot more sophisticated and a lot lengthier and complex mm -hmm. since, you know, I would probably say like the late 40s that you started saw this evolution. And then in the 70s, people started thinking about project delivery methods and what have you. Uh, you know, things, consensus docs started because we asked the American Institute of Architects, they came to the first meeting, and we had AGC, and we had ABC, and we had some owner groups. And we wanted everybody to be a part of this because the more, the broader your coalition and the more people involved, and the engineering groups. And AI was pretty open and honest in those initial conversations. They liked being in the driver's seat. Their mission is to further the interest of the design professional or the architectural community. And why would they give up being in the driver's seat? Because that's what they're used to. Now it's true that a lot of people still use AIA contract documents. And consensus docs is the Pepsi to their Coke. But really the biggest driver, unfortunately, is none of the above. The most used contract in the construction industry is none of the above. Right. It's it's a man, it's a I sometimes call them Frankenstein contracts because they're sewn together from the dead body parts of every failed construction it, project. It's exactly. I mean, when you have an attorney on board or you have a, if you're a general contractor, what happened on the last job? Well, let's make sure that we protect ourselves going forward. And my goodness, you know, things happen on jobs. So we have 30 or 40 years of that revisionist history written into contracts these days, right? 
Absolutely, and those contracts usually don't make sense. They make references to sections that, that are from a different contract. They have internal conflicts where you were protecting against one thing, uh, but they but something else in that contract didn't doesn't make sense with that. And it's like, hey, we got to take a holistic step back. And again, it matters because you know one of the things I say just fundamentally is you can't you're, you you come from the subcontracting community, and you say that the client is the general contractor. What are those two things that have in common? You can't say the word contract without saying. Uh, what was, you can't say subcontractor without saying contract. You can't say general contractor. And it's the owner. You, you know, you were talking about being the client. At the end of the day, the owner of the building. We're in a building right now. Is that now. where the word owner is comes from? I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> that may, maybe, maybe. Um, I think that's just a coincidence. At the end of the day, the owners have the most to gain uh, in a project. And they have the long-term capital asset. And rather than, again, I think that a lot of times, and we'll probably get into this, is that risk flows down and it's the one at the bottom gets the worst of it. Uh, but really it is in everybody's best interest. And I think that there's this dichotomy of those who take that win-win approach, they get better project results, they get better value. Uh, and at the end of the day, they have less claims and better projects. You know, you mentioned collaborative contract in some of your writings, as I said before, and that's really what consensus stocks is all about. Would you agree? So we have 113 standard construction contracts, contract documents. When you say we, you mean consensus, consensus the coalition. Um, I take a lot, it's, it's my work baby. By the way, consensus. he's the executive director of so, consensus. Stuff. Well, I was there to help form it, so it's like my work baby, it's right? It's, it's, my, it's, the, it's the love of my uh, professional career. And we serve all types. There's different types of project delivery methods. We were chatting a little bit. There's the traditional design bid build. And that's our 200 series. That's still the most used contract and subcontract to this day. What I'm really excited is you get into some of the alternative project delivery methods. Uh, and, and the latest in the past 10 years is uh, integrated lean project delivery, IPD or IPLD. Um, and actually, what you were talking before, one of the things that like distinguishes me um, I'm proud to say that I'm the only construction attorney in the United States that's certified uh, HCM Lean that has taken a course and taken a class, taken a class and taken a test on lean construction techniques. And what's so interesting about this to me is, well, nobody really loves dealing with construction attorneys. Project deliveries and, and setting up that foundation is determined by how you set up the structure of your contracts mm -hmm. in a purist form. You can do a lot of things culturally, but but the best way is to create the skeleton and the structure, and that's contractually, to set up to have, have the collaboration. And that's, you know, there's design bid build, then there's CM at risk and design build, and we have those, and then there's IPD, and it's like, that's the the highest level that of collaboration. That is the highest level of collaboration. And, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but started on the West Coast, and is prevalent, more prevalent out there, much more than here. And Sutter Health in, in, in the California, yeah, not surprisingly, it came from the, the, the West Coast, but a hospital project, oh, okay. healthcare, most expensive, most complex. Right. They're the ones who started. They, they said, hey, we need to do something different. So I used to do business on the West Coast as well as the East Coast, and, and I would come back to New York and we would talk about design build or you know collaboration and, and, and the folks in New York were like, what? Yeah. What? You know, they had just no idea. Now, the last three jobs that I consult for a company here locally in Falls Church and 
uh, the last three jobs they got were all design assist jobs that turned into contracts. So I guess my point is that, that uh, through people like you and consensus docs and, and just a general understanding of what fairness is, right, the collaborative spirit, uh, things are, the delivery methods are getting better for the subcontractor here. Uh, and I, again, I use that word contract again, but uh, why we're on delivery methods? I mean, you, you consider, design, uh, I'm sorry, the IPD the most collaborative, which makes a lot of sense because if you could explain what that is real quick for the, those who don't know what I, the IPD is. Sure, and it would be great if we had like some visuals with like bubbles, but you know, we'll start out with design bid build is the typical way post-industrial revolution. And that is, there's an owner who contracts with the architect usually, or an engineer to come up with the design plans, usually in a vacuum, and makes design plans that makes lots of assumptions uh, for cost and scheduling and price. And they make those design plans 100% that you can bid and build the work. And then we select a general contractor, uh, and we select them based upon one factor usually only. Who can give it to me at the lowest price, right? right? And then <laughs> that creates the competition, and the general contractor gets bids from subcontractors, and they have separate contracts with each of those. The main thing here is the owner and the design professional have one contract and create that relationship, and then the owner and the general contractor have a separate contract and then it depends, but in the most part, the design professional um, becomes like the owner's representative and sometimes becomes judge, jury, and executioner who's paid by the owner in making those decisions. So they're supposed to be biased. I mean, sorry, non-biased, excuse right. me. But they do get their paychecks and they're not trained to be judges um, who take on a quasi-judicial role in telling the general contractor, you know, no, it's, it's the way I said, it's the way that we put it, my design intent means this, and you have to do that. And it creates friction points. And those friction points lead to this culture where we have very low margins, and it's, it's, it can be contentious. The, the United States, the most, if there's this great quote from the Construction Industry Institute that I often talk about. It's ironic that the the industry that relies upon the most love, the deepest levels of collaboration and cooperation is the most adversarial and most litigious in the United States. And it's because of the way we structure it. So I should pause there. But then the big thing was design build, right? Design build was, if you go back to the Egyptian pyramids, they were done design build because there was, there was no separation between the design and the build team, yeah. right? And so really the first contract wasn't written, but it was the design build. Post-industrial, the industrial revolution said, oh, no, 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 there's one person who should be the professional, white collar, who should do the design, and then we should have another entity do the build. There's one contract with the owner, and the, the design team does both the build and the design. Much better for the owner for one thing in particular. There's less silos, and there's usually this gap in liability from design bid build where the design professional cannot be expected to provide perfect design, but when they give it to the general contractor, those design documents have an implied fitness of warranty. And if there's any changes, and this is called the Spearing Doctrine, the general contractor can get a change order for more time and money. Right. And that creates, and, and all that risk has to flow down to the subcontractor. It always does, right? But they have more time to develop the design through that process and are more collaborative with the builder. 
in essence, right? For design build. For design build, correct. Well, it's fast track too, right? Because the design's usually usually not a hundred percent complete when you when you secure the builder, and sometimes you have you lock in the guaranteed maximum price, that, which is it's a ceiling. It's not a firm fixed price, right. but it, um, you or you could do a fixed price for design build. It's possible, uh, but it, the design's not a hundred. So you're you're unleashing innovation. You're unleashing flexibility and communications to finish the design to figure out the best schedule, the best materials uh, to come up with the best project results. So how do you personally get this message out to the general contracting community, the developer community, the owner community? In other words, you know, teach them that there are better ways to do things. How do you do that? Well, that is probably in some ways the biggest challenge. I am very passionate and the evangelical uh, person to talk about fair contracts and consensus stocks as a solution to get there. The best thing is, there's not many, but there's some studies, some construction industry institute, there's a Canadian study. All the studies say the same things. The worst contracts gets the worst results, the best contracts gets the best teams, gets the best results. And that's what I, and then I do a chart about the construction industry, not only is it one of the most litigious, it's one of the most inefficient. Some of the studies say that in the late 90s to the 2010, the industry got less efficient, not more, in putting construction in place for every dollar spent, and that's in real dollar terms. That sounds crazy. Now we've gotten better, but not much, and we pale in comparison to manufacturing or even farm, farm uh, businesses as measured by the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics. So there's huge areas of improvements for efficiency and productivity for the industry. And we're on the cusp of all this technology that is now being incorporated into projects. But it's the silos that are often communication silos that are contractually mandated that are leading to some of the biggest losses of productivity that we do have and, and the contention. So owners, you know, I see um, a dichotomy of owners out there and getting that message. Some owners are, they feel like they have cost certainty with a firm fixed price and they want people to compete and sometimes it's required legally, mm -hmm. right? I think that I've been really surprised in the owner groups that I've talked to is they're, they're sick and tired of it too. They don't want to be low bid. They don't want change order artists. They've been through the rodeo before. They're looking for a better way and they're looking for a more efficient way. And, yet, and, and so I think that those repetitive owners and their rep, maybe most importantly, their representatives, owners, reps, or attorneys, right, can help guide them to better, more collaborative solutions based upon experience. So last question before we break. Price-driven, often contracts are driven around and selections are driven around price, but it seems like in the last couple of years, schedule has really, really driven a lot of decisions. Has it, A, and B, if it has, how has it impacted the way people go to contract? Well, there's that joke, right? I can give you two of the three. I can give you your your best your best price, your best schedule, and your best quality. I can give you two of those three, but I can't give you all three. Uh, I just heard actually someone I really respect who's an owner who's, he, he said that's a little glib the way of doing it. Uh, you know, the, the design and that actually started I think with the movement to design build and a little bit to IPD is well, we don't even have to finish the design before we start breaking dirt make breaking ground. Um, owners 
have so much to gain a lot of times um, and things are a little bit in flux, they, time is money. Um, investors, equity firms, they're putting money down, they need to see returns on investment. So what's interesting, in, and I, before I became a construction attorney, I would not have guessed this when I was just uh, going through law school, is there are so many, there, the, when you have litigation, when I go to my construction law conferences, Many times they're sponsored by a whole industry of people who are measuring the delay effects and the cost of value, this, the claims consultants and delay, schedule delay analysis. And it, it's funny, you know, each size has a totally different story as to what the impact of those delays. But you're right, um, schedule, time is money. It's really important. And, you know, one plus one doesn't even equal two anymore when we're talking about schedule setbacks and delays. They become... 11 right and so uh, that that is part of the friction what they say in lean construction which is usually used for IPD is go slow to go fast mm -hmm. and there's a lot of energy and money and time spent in the planning phases so things are smoother you know what I say is you what you want to do is measure twice and cut once, cut once. Right. interesting that is uh, we're gonna we're gonna take a quick break and when we get back, we're going to drill down into things that we call killer clauses that I'm sure all you owners and managers out there uh, know what they are, but we're going to go through them. So we'll see you in a minute. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Presida, president of Adequate Construction Services, LLC, and I would love to talk to you business owners about your business. I bet you most of you that are listening have at least 75% of your personal equity tied up in the business. If you care about options on how to get that money out, that's what I want to talk to you about because I've been through it. I was a business owner and I sold my business. Didn't even know there was a buyer, but there are plenty of them. There has never been a better time, never been a better time than now to sell your business. So maybe you haven't even thought about it. The last deal I did, the guy, I talked to him, I said, have you ever considered selling your business? He goes, didn't know I could. Well, yes, you can. There's a lot of options. I would urge you to go to my website, adicorp.com, A-D-I-C-O-R-P.com. My last name's spelled backwards. And go to uh, season one podcast, episode two, sales and acquisitions. It's going to answer a lot of questions you might have. Yes, we talk about how you value your company, but that's only one piece Right? We're talking about why you would sell, who would buy it, common concerns about you, your staff, your clients, your legacy, all important things to discuss. So go and listen to that podcast and then contact me. Either call me or leave a message on my contact page on the website and I will get back to you because as I said when I started, I look forward to talking to you about your business between now and then. Stay safe and stay tuned. Hey everybody, welcome back to Commercial Construction Elevate the Industry podcast. We have with us Brian Perberg, who is uh, a leading construction attorney, and we're going to get into some things that we call killer clauses. Now, I sold my company years ago to a public company, and then I, I kind of integrated into their uh, commercial group, if you will, and, and it was fairly new to them, but we had a whole matrix of clauses, right, that some were negotiable, some were non-negotiable, some were acceptable, some were killer. So when I think of a killer clause, I'm thinking about things like, um, well, not even killer clause, but things you have to adjust to would be pay when paid and uh, flow down clauses. You know, what do you see as a 
as, a, as a, an attorney in construction that a subcontractor needs to look at when they look at their standard contract? Well, let's take a quick, I'll answer that. And I'm doing a webinar in March that I'm sure will be, we'll make it available online. It'll be evergreen on exactly that, on contract killer clauses. And I've done that presentation several, several times. And you know, there's there's kind of an agreement with like of the top 10, we might have like some agreement like on the, like two or three you might swap out for different people might say, but like indemnity, payment provisions, those some notice provisions, some of those things are, everybody agrees, like you gotta watch for that, differing site conditions. Those are things like you definitely, the price and payment, we talked a little bit about that. Pay if pay, we'll get to. Uh, you, you, you need to look at. But here's the funny thing about subcontracts. You know the first thing I tell people in the contract documents working groups that we have, the group came up with an acronym that actually precedes my time. And they said for every contract you need to do one thing, RTFC. RTFC. And you're probably looking at me, what the heck is that? Read the F in contract. There you go. <laughs> All right, you've heard it. Yeah. That's right. And the F does double duty there. A lot of people, they don't read their, even though it's so important to them for the risk management, it is, because when you have a problem, the first thing you do is you get the contract out, right? A lot of people want to stick the contract in a drawer and they never want to deal with it again. I don't think that's the way you should operate and I don't think that's the way you should write your contracts. Your contracts should memorialize the business relationship that you want to have. So the first thing is subcontractors, they should read their contracts, all contractors should, and you shouldn't give the same price for somebody who has a totally different risk profile. This is what drives me mad. I mean, I tell you that there's a 20% premium that owners pay on projects when they have unfair clauses that relate to five provisions. They're the, they're the ones that we just talked about, right? Mm -hmm. like the indemnification, the different site conditions. You, you switch those to being unfair and egregious terms, owner's terms, that's going to, there's going to be a price premium. However, when you're doing bid work, somebody's usually willing to give you a price for some unfair clause, or they maybe because they didn't read it. And I just think it's really important that there's more leverage in reading and making sure you give the right price for the right risk profile. Don't give the same price to Dave when he has a fair contract and somebody else who has an egregious one you're doing, it's a totally different risk. You can't give the same now, That's such a good, simple advice. I hope you heard that. You know, the contracts are kind of crazy today and a lot of general contractors make you accept their contract before you bid the job. And it's it's like, it's a catch 22, you know? I'm damned if I do, I'm damned if I don't. Um, but you're right, I think people are afraid to push back sometime on contracts because you don't want to sound unreasonable. You want to build relationships, right? Mm -hmm. You want somebody to trust you. But I can tell you this, if you don't push back on the contract, they're not, I, I think the people on the other side are not going to respect you because you're just going to roll over. And I don't think people really want to partner that way. You don't want somebody adversarial, but do your due diligence is what you're saying. Read the African contract <laughs> yeah. first and, and some of these clauses. And I, I never thought about what you just said, that you can put a premium on onerous clauses and if they won't take them out, it should affect your price. Well, and in consensus docs, I work with the American Subcontractors Association, and what they have guidelines, and they say you should condition your bid on an unmodified consensus doc 750 subcontract or 751 short form, because again, for the exact reason, you can condition your bid prices 
based upon certain terms. Now, what's crazy about a lot of subcontracts is you, you mentioned that they, they want you to agree to the contract. Well, a lot of times the subcontractor subcontract incorporates the prime agreement. Almost always. It, it, it always does, right? Which one's governing over the other? But here's the crazy things. A lot of times they don't give never the prime it. agreement, right? right? Or it's, it's or it, everything's stricken out. I mean, so, and that's, you can have the private parts um, redacted. redacted, but how can a con subcontractor possibly adhere to a contract that they don't even know the terms of? And it is mandatory that they follow the contract. So it's it's different than a catch-22, but it's it's pretty much a catch-22. What are some of the simple things you can negotiate out of a contract that you've seen in your day? Uh, you know, one of the things that we have that's maybe all hard to negotiate out is the duty to defend. Um, I would say insurance, the additional insured uh, provision is a lot of times subcontractors have to provide additional insured protections. One is, is there an extra cost for it? Who's the additional shirt? Is, does it include the design professional? Is it separate contractors who are on the site doing work for the owner? Uh, do they have any relationship? Are they other subcontractors? So what might happen is a weaker party, or I should say a subcontractor might be protecting other weaker subcontractors or other people who are negligent when they you know, didn't really have anything to do with the, their work on the project. Uh, that's a big one that is hard to negotiate. Um, notice provisions and some the, the amount of documentation that you have to provide before putting in a claim. It's unbelievable. It's, 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 if you work for a general contractor who has 100 people on site and you're working with a company with seven people, two PMs, and you can't, you can't outpaper them. You can't do it. And again, it comes back to, look, understanding your job, right, getting the right price and the right terms, which is what we're talking about right now, and executing. And if you never have to pull the contract out, great. Unfortunately, the contract gets pulled out when there's a problem. Sure. And that, and then, then everything's about the contract. And you know, if the con if your client says, "I'm looking at the contract," yeah, not you know, not so good. Um, when you when you work with a client. Do you urge them to, you know, say, we, we talk about read the effort contract, but I look at it as contract review. There's two pieces. There's the scope of work. Well, there's several sure. pieces, but the scope of work is, is pursuing to that particular job. And then there's the boilerplate, right? So how would you, I mean, the, the scope of work is what it is. We were doing this, this, this. We exclude this and this. Simple. Not always simple, but, you know, the boilerplate, though, I mean, there's some, there's some things in the boilerplate that just... It kind of it makes your hair stand on that, you know, and 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 you as somebody trying to get work have to navigate through this. So, I guess I'm leading up to the question: Is when is the best time do you think it, to negotiate these before or as you're negotiating the job? In other words, it doesn't matter if you're way up here or your schedule won't allow it. There's forget it. You're not you're not even being considered. Well, here's a great point that you just, just triggered something. There has never, ever, in the, certainly in the time of my career, and I bet yours as well, there's never been a better time to negotiate contract clauses for one reason, if you're a subcontractor. You are more in demand and have more leverage today than ever because there is a shortage of manpower and subcontractors are starting to choose the work that they want rather than the work that just comes to them that they, they feel like they have to take.
Uh, I've heard that in other markets. Now it sounds like it's in almost every market. That's a good, that's a great point. The best general contractors are attracting and cultivating subcontractors that they want to work with. And then there's the A team, the B team, and the C team, right? Which team are you going to put on? Do you want to put them on the contracts and the projects that people treated you civilly and like a, like a human being? Or do they you know, try to, to treat you like they're going to have a gotcha and then put you on the short end of the stick? So I think what I'm hearing is you got to understand your place in the market, right? How, how much value you bring. Because I can tell you this, over the last two years, even through COVID, the contractors that came to see the operation that I, I'm consulting for a company now that has a prefab operation, they came to see it. They all said the same thing. We want to develop a relationship. They're looking at their own future. They're saying, I need people I can count on, and I need people that I can work with, and I need people who are progressive because things are changing. Um, so know your place in the industry. Know your value. That's a great place to start uh, when you're negotiating anything, right? That's, that's, that's really good. Now, force majeure. I've read that term, that phrase, for too many years. I never understood it, but now it's real. Could you explain what it is? Sure. So most of our legal concepts comes from England and common law. Force majeure is actually French. And I don't know why we, we took this French concept, but it means superior force. And it's generally the concept, is, I have a couple things. It was, it's nobody's fault. Uh, there's some superior force that... Uh, that, that thrust us upon like an act of God, that, that it wasn't your fault or mine, but we just have to deal with it in the project. Uh, and then usually, force majeure has, you get additional time as a remedy, but not additional money, as historically has what it's been. But basically, it's sort of a blameless thing where it's not your fault, oh, and the other part I forgot to mention is that it wasn't expected, right? It wasn't reasonably anticipated for this thing that was neither of our fault. For the most part, before 2020, it was boilerplate, and most people didn't spend a lot of time dealing with it, and if they did, it certainly wasn't for epidemics or pandemics. Now, one of the things that consensus docs got right that other standard documents did not is we specifically put in our force majeure clause, and we don't actually call it a force majeure clause, but it doesn't matter how you title it, was that we specifically said that an epidemic is worthy of adjustment. And what's interesting now is two things. One is we're dealing with COVID now for two years. We're coming up on the, wow, it's, it's already here. When we're dealing with it now, it's foreseeable, right? Or a variant of it probably is foreseeable. Um, because all the experts talk about that, and heck, it's happened. So, force majeure, and the other thing about force majeure, the owners generally um, kind of started saying, well, they, A, they tended to be reasonable in granting additional time. The money, a lot of owners actually were surprisingly uh, reasonable in change order requests, and so we didn't have an avalanche of litigation claims that was maybe initially anticipated. But going forward, there is sort of a shakeup, and some people say, hey, price it out. Some people say, I can't price it out. And now you have these tremendous price escalation uh, contingencies. And, and we actually have a price escalation clause, the consensus stocks 200.1. It's the only one in the industry. That's the biggest topic now. And it's a derivative of the COVID shortages. And it's been this way. It's going on a year now of price escalation being the number one it's issue. Unbelievable. And it's, it's, it, it's sort of like normally it's part of your business to figure out 
an, an inflation amount for your for your labor for your materials and it was part of your expertise this is this is unprecedented unprecedented and you can't predict it so what you can do is create like a really big contingency or give inflated prices or what you can do is have a price escalation and having share the pain uh, up or down right and and some owners will some owners won't you know but um, that that's like as you said you know that supply chain issues cost just to buy steel it's going up like 400 percent and 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 many other things that there's no way certain contractors could have foreseen that now you mentioned something that, that rings a bell you said if i think what you're inferring is if you get a contract during COVID, you knew COVID's here deal with it but if you had a contract before COVID and COVID hits then you might have a claim is that is that it, it's the anticipation. I mean, I think a lot of people would have said we wouldn't have anticipated these price spikes. And the other thing is, first it's first it's wood, then it's steel. What's next? What's next? And what do you tie the price escalation clause? But yes, a lot of people, depending on how you write your contract and what you put in your your either price escalation clause or your force majeure, you're likely the problem with our construction contracts. Why we should make it more relational is because usually by the time we worry about it on our contracts, it's like it's already here and it was for the contract you already signed. And then the problem that happens for the next one was something that we didn't anticipate. Yeah, so we want the best teams working together to problem solve, not point fingers and blame. But that is all too often uh, the way that we handle things. So we're going to take another quick break. Uh, and when we get back, we're going to talk about Things like technology and how it's changed. Uh, perhaps we're going to find out if there's been any changes to our uh, legal landscape uh, with technology, some of the challenges that are ahead, and we're going to get into consensus stocks. So we'll see you all in a minute. Hey, everybody. If you're looking for a strategic business partner who does subcontracting work on the interiors, let me tell you about the CFP group. They are a minority business enterprise and have been in business for over 20 years. If you're interested, you can contact them by email at cfpgroup1 at gmail.com or call them directly at 410-977-8568. That's 410-977-8568. Take it from me. I've done business with them and I know they can get the job done. Hi, welcome back. We're here with Brian Perlberg. And, um, you know, we're, we're talking about the history of, of uh construction law and it's been enlightening to me we, we drilled down into some of the killer clauses and delivery methods and everything else but let's talk about where we're going first technology has technology impacted construction law i mean it's it's certainly impacted the execution of all business I mean, most businesses but what about on the legal side so the first thing here is that i want to pick up on what you said about that technology is changing the landscape of construction we were the first to come out with a building information modeling contract document. Uh, there's a lot of firsts that we've addressed. Um, to me, technology and BIM is integrated. We're used to, we talked a little bit about prefabrication. That is technology and the sophistication of making construction components in more of a manufacturing site and then bringing it on site. Those technologies need to be reflected in your contracts. If you business operation operations change where your location is uh that what your the information in the form if it's digital versus paper if you're relying upon electronic information you need to say that in your contracts 
rather than saying that the paper paper governs. You need to update your contracts to reflect the business operations end of it. So to me, that's that is, and, and a lot of people say, well, we're just going to use BIM, and they make some reference to it in a contract. That doesn't make sense. That doesn't do the job. Uh, there's use sharing information website-wise. Uh, but the big thing is is actually that part of, am I rely upon paper blueprint, blueprint plans, or am I dealing with uh, the model or AutoCAD or something so like that? As I consult with uh, a prefab company, we look at what we've learned in the last two years and, and try to memorialize that in the scope of work part of the contract. You're exactly right. Uh, what responsibilities the general contractor has, A, B, C, D, E, give it to them before you sign a contract and include those things in the contract. They, the most simple things that, that sometimes we, as, uh, as business drivers, forget. So it's important, and it's not going to change. Technology, the you know, lack of manpower, the, and off-site construction is going to explode. We know that. It so is exploding. It, it's exploding a, a, as we speak, and um, I think for the right reasons. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I wanted to jump in on one thing that you, you stuck, struck something, or stuck something that I wanted to make a, a point of. You said earlier that... Oh, well, there's the work scope, and then there's the boilerplate, the legal terms. You know, one of the things that's the most important for the legal terms is how you define your work scope. What is a contract document and how you describe it and how you document it? That is huge. And you, as a non-attorney, as a practitioner, are in a better position to define that and to understand that. And so one of the things that we want is the legal teams and the practitioners who are most knowledgeable in the field to work together and define what the work scope is. Interesting. Get a consensus. Yes. We're going to get there. Okay. <laughs> um, challenges. Do you see any challenges in the future? You know, for com companies in construction with regard to their risk. Is it going to? Is it always going to be? There? I mean, it's always going to be there. Of course, it is. it's a, one of the highest, most highly risk. Uh, industries that and restaurant touring and maybe a few others but what are the challenges you see for entrepreneurs who are today in their 30s in their early 30s starting a construction business well I'll pick up on something the way the landscape is changing we talked about the term a little bit about design assist design assist is very exciting to me because you're blurring and getting the you're blurring the lines of design and means methods and techniques because you're getting the builders involved earlier in the process. And the reason you're doing that is the builders are the ones with the specialized information and technology, understanding knowledge and tools that they have to be brought in earlier. And there has to be a collaboration between the design and the build and figuring out costs. And we need to organize that information so we can make better, smarter decisions, right? And so that is a process improvement and, um, and then technology, uh, the other things that I actually wanted to get to too that I, I forgot to mention is how you look at your contracts might change. There's artificial intelligence. Consensus Docs is working with this group called Document Crunch. They are specialized in construction contracts, what to look for those important clauses, and then organize the contract to see what you have in. What does Consensus Docs say as a model? What are some pointers that you want to make sure that your field folks are aware of as well as the attorneys, hey, you know, this provision is important because of X. But really, doing an analysis and an organization of what's in your contract is just the first phase. 
And we're going to start using things like artificial intelligence to review our contracts along with people intelligence to make sure that we understand what those risks are and how to negotiate out of those. Yeah, we're going to go there now. Consensus Docs, you're the executive director. You are one of the, the founders, if you will, if that's the right word. Um, to a lay person listening to this podcast, how, how would you describe consensus? Because we talked about consensus stocks maybe three or four different times already. Describe it in its basic form and how would one get involved and what benefits would it have? So traditionally one association representing a segment of the industry writes, writes contracts. And historically that's been the AIA. And they create the sort of the backbone, the legal jargon, so to speak, that people then make modifications. And over the years, it's a lot of modifications usually because they see it as representing a viewpoint rather than a standard. Consensus docs came around and it's the words consensus and docs, designers, owners, contractors, and subcontractors. Uh, that's, that's what we came up with uh, is a double entendre of the word docs. And if you go to consensusdocs.org, you can get samples, you can get information. And what is, is we're trying to create a better foundation to build with a standard that we can all agree with because all of those different viewpoints were at the table and had an equal voice. So there's a lot of information, but it's basically a competitive set of documents to the AIA that you're used to seeing. And if you want the same results of litigation and adversarial uh, projects, you should go with the old way of doing things. If you want better results, you should try something new. It's, it's the Albert Einstein rule of uh, construction contracts. The definition of insanity is doing the same things over and over again and expecting different results. Well said. Um, you mentioned earlier that you can actually bid a job based on a certain set of assumptions from one of your documents. What document was that? Do you remember? Well, it, it, so if you're a prime contractor, you would use probably, if it's design bid build, the consensus stocks 200. That has our terms and conditions integrated in the agreement. If you're a subcontractor, you would use the subcontract, the 750 or the 751, and say, but you should get a copy of the contract uh, and have some understanding of what people want you to sign before you put your bid in. The best time to use your leverage or political will, it, it's a grassroots mobilization effort, is before you have the job. It's too late when you're already put the If an owner puts a job out to bid, it's too late. I mean, you can have some exceptions, you can have some negotiations. It's better to have, if possible, that conversation for somebody you're dealing with on multiple transactions. So I think what we're saying is know your place in the industry, know your value, and then now you have a resource to go to compare, maybe they're using an exactly. AI document to a consensus stock. That's, that's great. Um, that's I think that's a great way to, to look at it from a, at least a subcontractor's perspective because you're not only understanding where you fit in, but you're understanding how to negotiate and what what's others might consider fair, right? That might not be uh, in this contract you're looking at. So uh, I got to tell you, this has been fascinating to me. I'm a, you know, I'm a, a, a junkie, uh, commercial construction junkie. So all you guys out there and ladies that are listening, I hope you got as much out of us as I did. Brian Perbone, welcome, or thank you so much for all you offered today. And if you could tell the, the viewers how they can get a hold of you uh, and or consensus docs, maybe we can, uh, we can go there. 
Sure. So, you know, my last name is Pearlberg, like the gem, but no A and Berg, so it means Mountain of Pearls. If you Google Pearlberg, I'm the most relevant uh, Pearlberg out there. Uh, certainly Brian Pearlberg. But if you go to consensusdocs.org, uh, you can, there's a host of information uh, and you can contact us at one eight six six. Actually, I don't. I know it ends docs, uh, but I forget the last part. But if you go to consensusdocs.org, you can get a lot of information. You can get a demo. You can get a sample. Uh, we'd be happy to give you more information. And then, yeah, connect with me on LinkedIn. I have a lot of LinkedIn followers. Uh, you can reach me there, and uh, I will accept your invitation. Awesome. Again, thank you so much, and I want to thank everybody who tuned in today for listening. Uh, and until the next time, stay safe and stay tuned. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Elevate Industry. Check out my YouTube channel at Commercial Construction, Elevate the Industry. Visit my website, adicorp.com, A-D-I-C-O-R-P.com. Go to LinkedIn, search for David Proceda, hit connect and follow me. Please rate, review, and comment on this episode, and I look forward to seeing you next week. Elevate. 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 Elevate.